ओम जयंती मंगलाकाली भद्रकाली कपालिनी दुर्गा क्षमा शिवा धात्री स्वाहा स्वधा नमोस्तुते ओम शांति 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 हरि ओम तत्सत ओम सो व्हाट यू जस्ट हर्ड इज द चंडी एंड द फर्स्ट हिम ऑफ द चंडी एंड it's typically understood to be a hymn of invocation as we were saying a few moments ago and it really describes and details the divine mother kali the divine mother durga but much of the verse is in such exalted philosophical language that it portrays the divine mother not necessarily as a god in a pantheon a goddess in a pantheon but the ultimate philosophical principle of consciousness and more importantly the energy that moves in it or consciousness the spaciousness of pure being and its manifestation as the sum total of all things so what we do today and this is the discussion ahead of us is divine mother kali in her non dual aspect what i'm going to do is i'm take two verses from that hymn that you just heard the first hymn of the chandi and we'll speak a little bit about it and these two verses i believe really capture uh, among various other verses all throughout the chandi but these two verses are not actually obvious choices i think there's one there's one scene in the chandi where mahish asura the demon the buffalo demon accuses mother kali or or durga the divine mother of like fighting in a battalion of different goddesses and she says to him i alone exist in the universe i think that's like the most non dual statement of the chandi but i'm going to choose two other verses and we're going to use those two verses to expound on the non dual aspect of divine mother kali in three ways i want to talk about why she's depicted as so frightful and so horrifying and 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 so macabre why the mortuary funeral cremation ground vibe if you will why is she so metal why is she so goth that's on one one level of the discussion but on another level of discussion i like to talk a little bit about Makali is pure consciousness distinguishing pure consciousness in the tantric non-dual sense from the advaita vedantic sense but more importantly um what that non-duality non-duality looks like in terms of sadhana because the understanding of non-duality as far as makali is concerned informs sadhana it 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 provides a goal for sadhana in so far as the goal is to recognize the non-dual nature certain sadhanas spiritual practices must be designed to meet those goals second thing or the third thing i want to discuss which i think is quite exciting is makali from a more like socio anthropological standpoint makali from the standpoint of different world spiritual traditions and how the the symbol of makali is way more universal than we could ever have considered and that alone is in of itself a kind of non duality the fact that mother kali does not exist confined to a particular culture or climate or context but rather as a philosophical principle as a goddess as the primordial goddess as the mother of the universe she transcends even those categories of culture of climate of context and in fact is the goddess of so many different cultures all over the world that might even come to the conclusion there's one primordial spirituality that appeals to everyone that like has a place in everyone's heart and it might be this like worship of the goddess or the worship of of the highest reality as the divine mother both formless and with form <laughs> okay so let's see where this discussion will take us naturally having done kali puja what what is it, like 10 hours of non-stop puja to ma kali and and hopefully all of life by mother kali's grace can can be that unceasing puja but just in terms of formal ritual worship tantric puja the last uh day two days ah oh, namaste you are here there you are the last two days have featured really intense absorption in mother kali and there's so many in uh, so much imagery so much symbolism in the act of of, of performing ritual 
ritual worship to Mother Kali. <laughs> so there's so much to talk about that one feels kind of overwhelmed. So let's just see what we can explore today. Um, given just how much there is to talk about it, it, where do we even start? Where do we begin with describing Mother's non-dual nature, a nature that far transcends anything the mind could have, could, could conceive of, anything the language could say about it. But I think we'll start with this. One thing that we cannot escape from when it comes to Kali Puja and, and the imagery around Mother Kali is the ferocity of the image. So there's something very macabre in some cases about the way she's depicted. She's a funeral, sorry, what? cremation ground date. She's a, she's the, you know, her very, her, her, her Gayatri mantra. How strange. For the first time, I'm actually speechless. Like, I actually, I, I, I realize that I don't really have a lecture to give. I mean, one thing is we, we've, we've, No, I was reflecting a little bit earlier about how we have never missed a Monday in the past three years. Isn't that really exciting that like for three years we haven't dropped a single Monday? And it's kind of exciting like as a Sangha. We've managed to show up every single Monday night. For some of you on the East Coast, it's so late. And that for the two or three hours, back then it used to be six, seven hours like that. For like six, seven hours, we just spend the time on Zoom discussing all sorts of things. And like the fact that, you know, 50 something people in the world, all over the world actually, would come and just like sit down and talk about spirituality for 
such a intense period of time. It's like kind of awesome. It's awesome that 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 we did that. It's so cool. There's always been something to say. There's always been something to explore. But today, I find maybe it's like a pointed, like a poignant sort of thing that when I want to discuss mother's non-dual non-dual nature, she isn't saying anything. Like there's like nothing. Like yeah. <laughs> Maybe maybe that's like the best lecture that could be given about Mother Kali's non-dual nature, is that I actually have nothing to say. Like actually, I'm not I'm not being dramatic or anything. Like I mean I am, but no, like actually, like I don't know where to start. I thought if I had Amrita play the chandi a little bit and I meditate on Ma, I would enter the bab and then I would have something. But um, Rest. Okay. Kind of, does your sangha know what kind of weekend you've had? No, no, it's, it's the and same. You've been home all night, all day, doing puja, 16 hours probably? No, no, no. I, you know, I thought like after all of that puja, I'd be so charged with Kali Baba, this would be the easiest lecture in the world to give. <laughs> I'm like come home from the middle school with all the kids like sat down and like really rushed and then, but um, yeah, I thought after all that, but, but really it's the opposite. But here's what I'll do, if you'll indulge me. If you'll just give me like a minute. Just like, I'm so sorry. Just, just give me a moment. And then I'll see. Now I'll just sing for you the third hymn of the Chandi. Om Namas Chandikaye. Namo Devye Mahadevye Shivaye Satatam Namaha Namo Prakritye Bhadraye Niyata Pranatasmatam Raudraye Namo Nityaye Gaurye Dhatre Namo Namaha Jhutsnaye chenduru pinye sukhaye satatam namaha Kalyanye pranata vridhye siddhye kurmo namo namaha Nairitye bhubritam lakshme sharvanye te namo namaha Durgaye Durga Paraye Saraye Sarvakarinye Kyatyet Taiva Krishnaye Dhumraye Satatam Namaha Ati Saumyati Raudraye Natastasye Namo Namaha Namo Jagat Pratishtaye Devye Kritye Namo Namaha.
the goddess, to the great goddess, who is resplendent like the rays of the moon, who is the full moon itself, who is at once fierce and yet gentle, yet surpassingly beautiful and always blissful, to that goddess who is the fortune and misfortune of kings, who is the accomplisher of every task, the power whereby we are able to do anything at all, to that goddess who takes us across life's difficulties, who is herself the very difficulties that she helps us transcend, to that goddess who appears clear as space and yet often as dark and impenetrable as smoke, that goddess who is beyond both fierce and gentle, that support and foundation of the whole universe, we praise that goddess, Kali, Ya Devi Sarva Bhuteshu Vishnu Mayeti Shabdita Namastasye 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 Namu Namaha I salute that goddess by whose power Vishnu fell asleep and under whose power Vishnu remained subjugated, unable to act as God. I praise that deity who is the creative power of Vishnu whereby he is able to dream this world into existence. I praise the goddess who is Vishnu Maya. Ya Devi Sarva Bhuteshu Chetanetyadvidiyate Namastasya 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 Namo Namaha I praise that goddess who is consciousness, who is resplendent, who is beyond the mind, in whom the body and mind appear like so many passing dreams. I praise that goddess who is eternal consciousness itself, beyond both form and formlessness, beyond notions of existence or non-existence, indescribable. Ya Devi Sarva Bhuteshu Buddhi Rupena Sangstita Namastasye 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 Namo Namaha I praise that goddess who is the intellect itself, the intellect that is both darkened and illumined, the intellect by which a glimpse of that unfathomable consciousness can be had. Ya Devi Sarva Bhuteshu Nidra Rupena Sangstita Namastasya 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 Namo Namaha And O oh Mother, you roam about as Dhumavati, clad in dirty linen, with no one but a crow to accompany you, the crow that symbolizes the deep, dense darkness of pralaya. How truly terrible is your form as Dumavati. You are depicted as the crone of unspeakable terror from a time too ancient for the memory of modern peoples, a time when nature was truly fierce in the winter. That Dumavati who roams about when the universe is not, how fearsome and terrible you are. And yet, to the yogi, you are none other than the splendor of samadhi, you who sparkle in the formless, dense darkness of deepest meditative absorption. Some call you nidra, sleep. But as space appears dark and is in truth but a flood of light, so too are you dhumavati, the most gentle, beautiful and surpassingly glorious form. For you in that dense darkness of sleep, shine, illumined, and unobstructed. 
या देवी सर्वभूतेषु शुद्धारूपेण संस्थिता नमस्ते 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 नमो नमः Oh mother you are the hunger that moves the bee to the nectar filled flower you are the hunger that moves the dog to the dog bowl and the business person to wall street you are that hunger that drives everything in this universe and ultimately you are the hunger that awakens in our hearts for that which is intangible and unseen and yet more real to us than all that we have seen or tasted how is it mother that we have come to live our lives for that which seems so abstract so distant how is it that we've come to have such distaste for the things that are right there before us things that at one time used to give us delight things that ultimately prove to be unfulfilling and unsatisfying i praise you mother who art the insatiable hunger the hunger of the void that devours the universe again and again to regurgitate it back forth the hunger that abides as this universe itself of craving and desperation and cycles of birth and death and that hunger that ultimately leads to the universe's dissolution in the shrine of samadhi oh mother you are that hunger itself that gnawing hunger that spiritual hunger so much so that when you manifested as christ you said blessed be he who is hungry for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness they shall be fulfilled ya devi sarvabhuteshu chaya rupena sangstita नमस्ते 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 नमो नमः स्वामी विवेकानंद वंस सेड दैट द चाया ऑफ योर माया वाज द अवतार कृष्णा ऑल दैट अपीयर्स इन दिस वर्ल्ड इज बट योर शैडो हाउ देन कैन वी कॉल यू अ शैडो व्हेन लाइट इटसेल्फ इज बट अ शैडो टू यू यू हु आर द फॉर्मलेस लाइट सच डाज़लिंग स्प्लेंडर दैट द ब्राइटेस्ट सन सीम्स डार्कनड लाइक द डीपेस्ट नाइट यादेवीसर्वूतेषु शक्तिपेण संस्थिता नमस्ते 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 नमो नमः ओ मदर यू आर द वेरी पावर इन द लाइट बल्ब एंड इन द फायर इन द न्यूक्लियर वेपन यू आर द वेरी पावर इन ऑल दैट हैज पावर फॉर यू आर पावर इट्स सैल्यूटेशन टू यू बाई हूज ग्रेस पोवट्स आर पोवट्स Salutations to you by whose grace warriors are warriors. Salutations to the power whereby people can do anything at all. Ya Devi Sarva Bhuteshu Trishna Rupena Sangsita Namastasya 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 Namo Namaha. Salutations to the goddess who is thirst, the unquenchable thirst. Salutations to the goddess who, if she were to drink, the whole ocean would still be thirsty. यादेवीसर्वूतेषु शातिपेण संस्थिता नमस्ते 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 नमो नमः सैल्यूटेशंस ऑफ द गॉडेस हु इज इनफिनिट फॉरगिवनेस द फॉरगिवनेस दैट ओनली द ओशन कैन हैव फॉर द ड्रॉप द फॉरगिवनेस दैट कम्स फ्रॉम रेडिकल इंक्लूसिविटी एंड टोटल नॉन ड्यूअल एब्जॉर्प्शन when there is none to praise and none to blame what then can we make of forgiveness it is not an act but a reality ya devi sarva bhuteshu jati rupena sangstita namastasya 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 namo namaha how can we call you order 
For freak is thy very nature, and thy law is lawlessness. You are Swatantriya Shakti embodied, the personification of freedom. But here is the paradox, mother, that your freedom is expressed most beautifully in bondage. For just like a light burns brightest in a dark room, so too does your freedom shine all the more resplendently when applied in bondage, in law, in rigor, in structure. Salutations to the goddess who is in the form of order. Ya Devi Sarva Bhuteshu Lajja Rupena Sangstita Namastasya 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 Namo Namaha Salutations to you, you who are bashful and playful like a little girl. Though you are the sum total of all power, yet you remain ever inquisitive, ever curious, and ever simple-hearted. Ya Devi Sarva Bhuteshu Shanti Rupena Sangstita Namastasya 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 Namo Namaha And O oh Mother, as you sit atop your throne of skulls, you smile so sweetly as blood drips from the corners of your lips. The tilt of your waist and the glimmer of your bracelets and anklets so enchants the mind that peace flows uninterruptedly in the heart, a most blessed peace, an unshakable peace, a cooling feeling unperturbed by anything happening on the level of the body and mind, so much so that the great apostle Paul could only call it that which passeth all understanding. Ya Devi Sarva Bhuteshu Shraddha Rupena Sangstita Namastasya 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 Namo Namaha And whereby comes that quality where we feel tangibly the living presence of God enough to have faith in that reality? How do we transcend mere intellectual assent to a belief system? How do we recognize the truth that is God? and go beyond the wishful thinking that there should be a God in the universe that seems so intimidating. By your grace alone, Mother, does faith awaken in the hearts of the pure. Ya Devi Sarva Bhuteshu Kanti Rupena Sangstita Namastasya 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 Namo Namaha And who can speak of your beauty and of your splendor? For are you not the Supreme Mother? Are you not the Queen of Queens and the Sovereign of Sovereigns? Are you not the Rider atop the Lion? Utyat Banu Sahasraba Chatur Bahu Samanvita Are you not reddened like the rising of a thousand suns? Ya Devi Sarva Bhuteshu Lakshmi Rupena Sangstita Namastasya, 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 namo namaha. And though a person be ruined in every sense, financially and physically, though they be totally alone in the world, if they had but you in their heart, then they are most fortunate indeed. So we praise you, O Goddess, who abides in the form of good fortune. For the only good fortune in this world is to have taken thy name and to have constant remembrance of you in the heart. What other treasure could there be for us in this world, Mother, but the enchanting beauty of thy form, ever delightful 
and radiant in the shrine of the heart. Ya Devi Sarva Bhuteshu Vritti Rupena Sangsita Namastasya 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 Namo Namaha And the beauty and splendor that you inspire in the hearts of all those who love you demands some kind of expression, some kind of movement. And so we all enter the field of action, Mother, goaded on by you. As such, we praise you as movement, as action, as the activities of the mind, of the breath, of the body, and of the world. Salutations of the Goddess, who is vritti, movement itself. Ya Devi Sarva Bhuteshu Smriti Rupena Sangsita Namastasya 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 Namo Namaha I praise the Goddess, who is memory. How is it possible that we are able to remember anything at all? At a whim, the mind is made blank. You speak when you want to speak and you become silent when you want to become silent. No one speaks of their own accord. No word comes from anybody but from you. You who are the source of all words, being yourself silence, embodied as sound. Oh, Mother. To speak of you as remembrance. Perhaps you, in your true nature, are the remembrance of that same nature. Ya Devi Sarva Bhuteshu Daya Rupena Sangstita Namastasya 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 Namo Namaha and as Swamiji said, terror is thy name, death is thy breath, and every shaking step destroys a world forever. Yet in all of that, how is it that you appear to be so compassionate? Is that not your greatest compassion, that you swiftly behead us and thereby free us? Is not the very terror, the death and the destruction that thou bringest, is that not itself the compassion and beauty and honesty and sincerity that is motherhood? Ya Devi Sarva Bhuteshu Tushti Rupena Sangstita Namastasya 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 Namo Namaha And to the one whom you have graced with that vision of your awe-inspiring, terrible, mute form, bear like the dread realities of life and death. To that person they experience contentment like nothing else, a contentment not premised upon worldly things, but a contentment premised upon that which is unshakable, unperturbable, and infinite. Such is the only contentment in life to remember the Divine Mother, ever endearing, the formless beauty that sparkles in the dense darkness of Samadhi. Ya Devi Sarva Bhuteshu Mata Rupena Sangstita Namastasya 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 Namo Namaha and yet you are the Divine Mother, the embodiment of compassion and energy. You are not a foster mother or a stepmother, but my very own mother. How could I have ever fathomed such intimacy which that, with that which has for so long seemed to be so abstract? Ya Devi Sarva Bhuteshu Branti Rupena Sangstita 
नमस्ते 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 नमो नमा एंड अल्टीमेटली मदर यू आर द फॉर्म ऑफ एरर यू आर डिलूजन इट सेल्फ ऑल ऑफ दिस इज अ ट्रिक बट इट इज अ वेरी क्लेवर ट्रिक मदर by which you have caused us to believe that we are separate in a universe of plurality by which we have come to feel fear and anxiety and worry it is through that fear that all of this is perpetuated for at the heart of that fear is desire and at the heart of that desire is a fundamental misunderstanding of what we are and what this world is oh mother who are you if not the empowerer of that desire the manifestation of that fear the very embodiment of all delusion confusion and error whether i fail to solve a middle school math problem or whether i fail to understand my true nature as the formless brahman in truth you are the one that has held a palm over my eyes oh mother you who are hide and seek embodied by your grace is the mind wiped and all words fall lifeless to the ground and by your grace alone do they rise up like corpses animated by thy power to do thy bidding oh mother may i make many 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 more mistakes for in each and every one of them i've recognized only you indriyanam adishatre bhutanam chakileshu ya भूतेषु सततम तमो नम चितिपेणया कृष्ण एतव्याप्यस्तागत नमस्ते 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 नमो नम नमस्ते 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 नमो नमस्तुतासुरैर्पूर्वीष्टश्रयासुरेन्द्रेण दिनेशु सुभाने शुभाभद्रिहंतु चापद यासमृत तक्षणमेवहंदिनाभक्तिनम्रमूर्तिभक्तिनम्रमूर्ति शांति 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 हरि ओम तत्कृष्णापणमस्तु
So the predicament that the Tantrikas discovered some time ago is as such. The very problem is with this notion of good. The moment I presuppose something is good, I immediately then invoke its opposite. So if someone praises me and I enjoy that, fucked. Because the moment you enjoy praise, the moment the mind has identified this experience as good and desirable and pleasurable, naturally then an experience that is antithetical to this one must then be bad and unpleasurable and unwanted and unexpected. So the Buddha very famously would call this the problem of suffering. Dukkam, dukkam, sarvam, dukkam. And at the, at the heart of it, the heart of the problem of suffering is trishna, thirst. But at the heart of that is this categorization of good and bad. The reason I have thirst is because the mind projects onto reality these two categories and things fit into the first, good, and fit into the second, bad. And my desire is to first increase the first category and second, decrease the second category. <laughs> the fundamental predicament that we all find ourselves in. But the problem is that there are things in this world that we want that we will never get inevitably, though we may try and try. And there are things in this world that we don't want that we will do our best to keep away, but that we will never inevitably have to get. So like the loss of loved ones, death, loss of um, possession, blame, whatever it might be. And so naturally then, you have two options, either or, or three. The first option is to naively live life by trying to maximize the good. So this would be like what we might call a worldly existence. It's very... Um, intuitive and understandable it's, as, as an approach. It's, it's a very appealing approach, which is I can do my best though, right? There are things that are unsavory and I can do more than just push them under the carpet. I can make sure the old folks home is far away from where I live so that I don't have to actually watch my parents decay and confront the reality of death. <laughs> or I can make death so taboo that if someone talks about it at the um, dining room table at Thanksgiving, they get a, a swift talking to, you know? <laughs> so we can create ways in our society to shield ourselves from the bad and really attempt, or at least as a culture, as a culture, reinforce maybe the idea that we can live a good life, that we can make a certain amount of money and be comfortable and like have a nice family or like have good things. And our entire culture is built upon that, that promise of having good things. And once I was in a car with a friend and she was describing to me how she did everything right, like everything her parental figures told her to do and authority figures in life told her. And she, she had the very life that they were all so insistent that she get. But the moment she got that life and she realized that she wasn't happy, she went to them and asked them, like, why, am, why aren't I happy? And then she realized that none of them were either. <laughs> and she felt betrayed. The feeling that she felt was a feeling of betrayal. The realization that although it's sold to us that things can be good, it's fundamentally not likely. Because even when the good things come, the temporal nature of the universe is such that the moment the good thing comes, it opens us up to the very fact that it must go away. But notice the problem is not the experience itself. The problem has always been the mind's superimposition of labels. Like, this is good. I want more of this. This is bad. I want more. Of, I, I want less of that. And although as a culture, there's like a general consensus, right, about like what would constitute goodness. Like having more money, a lot of people will say is generally good. Like if someone wins the lottery, you don't come to their house and say, I'm so sorry for your loss. 
my condolences. Do you want to talk about it? Are you okay? But that would actually be the appropriate response, you know. Because a lot of people suffer a lot from having a lot of money. They feel a tremendous amount of anxiety and fear because now they have more, they have more to lose. So I think it's kind of whack that we as a culture <laughs> pat each other on the back and say, good, you made more money. My ass, you should say, I'm so sorry that happened to you. Can I help? Can I, can I take it off of you? <laughs> but it's a problem. It's a problem that we like enforce that well, what we congratulate each other for are those very things that will cause each of us to suffer. And in, in so doing, we're all complicit in each other's suffering because we're all encouraging each other to go and eat those things that are ultimately sickening and poisonous and bitter in the end. <laughs> That's one thing. The second thing is like, if someone loses a loved one, we go and we say, I'm so sorry. We don't say, ah, how wonderful that you've had this experience of sharp beauty, this moment to realize what that person really meant to you. How lucky you are. You know, some people live their whole lives and they never once like really feel love for their mother. Good for you that she died in an accident because now you feel something much more real than you could have ever felt if you just lived a humdrum existence with your mother in some faraway state that you call every now and then. You know, like the appropriate response for someone losing a loved one or losing a limb or getting really ill is congratulations. I'm so happy for you because now you will cut through the illusions of this world and get to what's really real, that which is impenetrable, you know. But notice how out of line, how whack the culture is that we, we flip these. And the Bible is very right to say wisdom with the world is foolishness with God. But notice, even if you were to flip it, right? Like even if you achieve this utopia of like, no, now we say condolences when people make a lot of money. And we say congratulations when people become financially ruined. It doesn't solve the problem, you see. It, it might like swing the pendulum the other way and help with today's but sooner or later that will just be the new world where it like flips the problem then is still the notions of good or bad so so while generally we all of us have a kind of cultural consensus about what would be good and what would be bad we also each of us have a personal understanding of that we know that there are certain things that if if, if they happen in our life they would be good like these things would be good to happen to me so I, I, I'm actively working to have them happen to me or these things would be bad to happen to me. And that, that list might be different for me and someone else. Like we might like compare lists and find that they're actually inverses from one another, but we're both equally fucked. This is an important point. The reason why is because we both have created a duality, a dichotomy. The moment there is something good, whatever it might be, there will automatically be then necessarily something bad. So we'll start with this. This is the predicament, the fundamental predicament. And there are three approaches, generally speaking. The first one we already talked about, which is a kind of delusive approach of trying your best to maximize the good and diminish the bad, whatever um, that, that ultimately turns out to be for you. So whatever your good is or whatever your bad is, is beside the point. The very act of trying to maximize the former and decrease the latter, we can call this the first approach. And it's generally considered to be like a culturally viable sort of reasonable thing to try to do, to try to live a better life. There's nothing wrong with that. However, the other two approaches we can call our spirit, properly speaking, spiritual approaches. The second one is the approach that you find with transcendentalist traditions like Vedanta and its Advaitic um, leaning or Buddhism in most of its forms. There, the predicament is recognized early on and disengagement is invited. So there it's like, okay, obviously good and bad exist in the world, but the good news is that the world itself doesn't exist. You know, so here, the strategy to dissolve the mind's natural superimposition of good or bad, which remember, 
if we're able to dissolve this, we actually solve everything down the line. So if I don't have categories of good or bad, I therefore will not have desire, therefore I will not have fear, and therefore I will not suffer. So the basic kind of Advaitic or Buddhist logic. So you get cut the problem at its root, this identity or this identification with separate self. And the way to do that is by proving the world to be unreal. That's, that's one approach. The second approach, though, is by proving the world to be real. But in the second approach, there's a further two, two approaches. You can categorize them in two different ways. A realist approach that says the world is real will either say that God is real and that there is some eternal place where you can go and hang out with God forever and that place is like all good. You know, but notice even that is conceived in the realm of our own superimposition of like good or bad, right? And so the Vedantists pointed out um, they pointed out very beautifully something something very um, poignant. They said, you know, it's a law that anything that starts will end. So if heaven starts, then heaven must end. Right? It's like the idea that like, if there is a place of eternal good, and if it's not here now, and if through some religious act, I can attain it there and then, then necessarily it's something that starts. And anything that starts must, again, necessarily end. So that kind of place would not be worth attaining because it would still be subject to the same criticism that we discussed a few moments ago. It would still be subject to the natural like existence of opposites, the natural existence of temporality. So Swami Vivekananda very famously once said when he came to America, he said, I have not come to teach you to go to heaven. Remember, this is in a context of religious communities here being really interested in this idea of like a utopia, like an afterlife where everything is good and there's no bad or anything. Like I've not come to teach you to go to a place like that. I've come to teach you to stop wanting to go to a place like that. Isn't that right? I've not come to teach you to go to heaven. I've come to teach you to stop wanting to go to heaven. <laughs> it's a pretty controversial claim. But notice, the very same thing that I have in this world is desire to maximize my good through becoming financially successful or through having more pleasure or through getting more prestige. That is superimposed onto the quote-unquote afterlife. And so I pre presume that if I do a certain like action, I'm going to maximize my good, which maybe is not here now, which is a kind of maturity, right? Like those who think that that goodness is here now, um, often are very easily disappointed. And so that's why often they turn to spiritual solutions, like they, they look to religion. And religion then presents to them this idea of like, no, 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 you can get it. It's just obviously not here as you in your life experience have determined, <laughs> but it is there. It is available. It's just in heaven. But notice, principally, it's the same thing. This desire for that which is good with the elimination of that which is bad. Now, the problem is not just that something that starts is also something that ends. But the very existence of heaven, the very existence of a place that's all good, presupposes its opposite. The existence of like this hell realm, this place of like evil and, and badness. And so the moment these dualities are here you find that actually what the religion has done is it hasn't actually helped. It's exacerbated. Because now your notion of I want the good has become exacerbated to I want the divine good. And the moment I want the divine good, now the new thing is that I'm afraid of the divine bad. Do you see the problem? <laughs> it's like there's no way that a dualistic religion actually can solve for the, if, if insofar as we frame the problem as the fundamental superimposition of good or bad, then there's no way that like a religion that promises goodness and good outcomes could solve for that. In fact, it only exacerbates that. Because as, 
as much as you wanted worldly good, maybe now you want religious good more. Your, your notion of the bright red shiny Ferrari has become so much more appealing and therefore so much more alluring. Right? If your attachment to worldly things was strong, imagine how much more your attachment is to those things that are sold to you as like ultimately good, like incorrigibly good. You know, <laughs> but the moment, the very moment you posit something like that, like a God who is good, you must then accept Satan. Right? Like if God is all good, then there must be its opposite. That's like a natural understanding that the mind has about the universe. Anything we posit, its natural opposite must also inhere. So if I say there's a place called heaven and it's where all the good things happen. Then there must also be a place called hell. It's where all the bad things happen. So in some sense, the person who is religious in this sense in the world suffers maybe more acutely because they don't just fear the sickness and you know loss and all the real terrors of the world. They fear eternal damnation right, in some cases. And they don't just crave money, which maybe for some of them seem kind of paltry in comparison to seems paltry in comparison to like heaven. They crave that. So now their fear and their desire have exponentially increased. Okay, so this is the problem with a realist approach. It posits God, and in positing God, it opens up a can of worms. Like, how do you solve the problem of evil? Why is there suffering in the world? If God is all good and if God is all powerful, then why is there evil? And Advaita Vedanta has a very easy out. They'll say, what evil? <laughs> you know, it's just a dream. So you dreamt that there was a monster tearing up New York or something. And then you woke up. Now you don't spend all day like trying to figure out why there was a monster and how could the God of your dream universe allow for such a tragedy to occur. You don't, because when you wake up, yeah, you dismiss the whole thing as a dream and therefore you dismiss any like problems of theodicy, you know, like, like deep metaphysical questions about the dream are secondary because now you're awake. And so you don't have to figure out what dream reality was because you're not really buying into that reality right now, at least. Okay, so this is an important point that Insofar as Advaita Vedanta sees the world as unreal, then it doesn't have to answer for this whole problem of theodicy. But if you do say the world is real and that God is real, then you have to invent things like Satan or karma or something like that. You have to give some kind of explanation for why bad stuff happens. See, and this is why sometimes we, we go to spirituality because we want to escape the suffering of the world, the very real and honest predicament. But we find that spirituality is only exacerbating. You know, it's deepened our illusion. It's given us a new object to covet and a new object to fear that now have infinite proportions. <laughs> That's the problem. So a lot of people, I think, really value the Buddhistic and the Advaita Vedantic approach because it cuts through all of that. It says, no, 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 there's not this like place called heaven and nor will anything you get in this world ultimately satisfy you. Nor is there really this place called hell or Satan. And there's also nothing in this world that should really terrify you because ultimately the world is void. Shunya, the Buddhist will say. Or the world is Maya, the Vedantist will say. The Buddhists won't say what's real, but they don't deny that there's something. The Vedantist will say, well, that's called Brahman. Now, Brahman is not a person. Brahman is not God in our sense of you know, the word God. Brahman is pure reality. It's an impersonal principle. It's what you are in the sense that it's the only thing there is. And when recognized, all these, th these fears and these desires for supposed heavens or supposed Ferraris or supposed hells or supposed illnesses, all of that goes away. So this is, I think, very appealing to many people, this transcendentalist approach. So what ends up happening is typically people will go and listen to a few non-duality lectures or something like that. They'll get very excited. But soon they find that all of that intellectualization, all of that very real understanding that the world is void doesn't actually change their feeling that the world is real. 
You know, so now you have a predicament, a very philosophically and intellectually sound model that dismisses the fear and desire of a real world versus the heart's natural inclination to feel fear and desire as an actual lived part of your experience. So then it seems more honest, I think, in many cases to go for the realist spiritual tradition, because that at least meets you on your level and speaks to your experience. The world feels real. So God must be real. Salvation must be real, like all of that. So now enter the, the unique thing I want to talk about today. So we spoke about, like there's generally, generally speaking, three approaches we can take. The first is called the worldly approach, where we don't think about heaven, or we don't think about hell, or we just do our best day by day to increase the amount of worldly good that we have, money, pleasure, name and fame, influence, what have you. And we work hard to decrease the amount of worldly bad there is for ourselves and for others. Right. Obviously, this discussion goes beyond just the individual. It also has to do with how we treat others and how we manage societies. You know, a religious society will do the same thing, except they will try to maximize spiritual goods for people. But it's the same same kind of logic. So the second approach is um, you you want the good, but you recognize that it's not available in the world anymore. So you offshore, quote unquote, the good to some supernatural realm like heaven. And you live your life trying to get there. So that's the second approach. Then. The third approach is that you dismiss all of these things as ultimately real. Like you said, there's no such thing as heaven or hell. There's no such thing as a world even. And that will mean you disengage. You become a monastic. You know? So typically Advaita Vedanta or Buddhism, it has a habit of turning people into monks and nuns. Because if you really follow through on that logic and if you really feel its teachings to be true, why continue to have your being in the world? What is there here for you? It's an illusion. It's a mirage. Why continue to drink? at the oasis that shimmers in the distance of the desert. It won't fulfill your thirst, so leave it behind. Yet, no one can deny there's something about this world that invites curiosity, that invites our fascination. And the Buddhists and the Advaitans say, yeah, that's spiritual immaturity. You just haven't like tasted the world enough to realize that it's an illusion. You know, that's the, the, the teacher. But now, the, what I want to speak about tonight yeah, is in contrast, in sharp contrast to all of that. This tradition that we're going to talk about tonight around the Divine Mother Kali seems to have gotten the best of all of these worlds. It's provided us with a realism that isn't dualistic. So non-dual realism is like, I think, the unique contribution of the Divine Mother Kali in her philosophical aspect, in a theoretical aspect, and in her actual metaphysical existence as that which is beyond the world and yet wholly imminent in it, who is the one reality manifested as all things. And today, what I want to say before we close is just I want to talk about a few sadhanas. There are some tantric sadhanas, actually, that are helpful in attaining this state. This state whereby we recognize the world to be real, and yet at the same time, we don't have those categories of good or bad, which, as we discussed, seem to be at the root of all suffering. Okay. So insofar as we're discussing Mother Kali's non-dual um, nature, the first thing to note is this, what kind of non-duality is it? Because most kinds of non-duality are non-dualities of dissolution. So you dissolve something, the countable second, and by dissolving the countable second, all that remains is the one reality. So this is the strategy of Advaita Vedanta. It says, note this, you're aware. What are you aware of? Well, you're aware of objects. Then you note, do these objects exist out there in the world? Well, if they did, I've never experienced them that way. I've never once experienced an object as an objective reality outside of my experience. And that's weird to experience something outside of your experience. Everything you know about, you know from within yourself, from within your own experience. The problem here is that 
there's a fundamental ignorance that there is a world beyond me. But but clearly, I've never seen it. I've never felt it. All I know is confined to my own experience. Then that's this wonderful inversion. You say the world that I saw that appeared to me is now appearing in me. And if it's appearing in me, it's nothing other than me. That's kind of how we do this Advaitic non-duality. But the way you do it actually is by dismissing that world which you see as real. You know, because it, it presents itself as a duality, as a plurality. It presents itself as the countable second or as the other. So Advaita Vedanta and Buddhism, the, the training there, a lot of it hasn't, of course, Buddhism is vast. You know, who, who can just say the word Buddhism? Like, I mean more like classical Theravadin sorts of Buddhism, maybe maybe even some forms of Madhyama Buddhism. But certainly Vajrayana and Dzogchen Buddhism, maybe not so much. But point is, there are transcendentalist traditions and those are mostly interested in dissolving um, that countable second. So the body is not real. The mind is not real. How do they do this? They do this based on the philosophy of change, impermanence. If something is changing, it therefore must not be real. But notice this is just kind of axiomatic. Yes, they have certain logical ways of proving this, but ultimately it's just an axiom. Notice, if something changes, it's therefore unreal. But why should that be the case? No, the Buddhists will just suggest this. Anityam, manityam, sarvam, anityam. Everything is transient. And therefore, shunyam, shunyam, sarvam, shunyam. Therefore, everything is non-existent. But wait, what about impermanence necess necessitates um, unreality? Isn't that a pretty striking point? Like, what ex exactly is it about impermanence? The fact that the tantrika is willing to take you up on that and say, no, what, what if impermanence itself is real? If there's something about impermanence, that dynamism might be eternal. Think of an eternal impermanence, if you will. So I write the and say, look, the world is changing. And therefore, let it go. And the, the language is, the world is changing, therefore let go of everything. Right? But it seems like Mother Kali's invitation, the invitation of tantric non-duality, is the world is changing, therefore embrace everything, for know that to be your God. That's, that's one of the differences. Okay, so you would you can achieve there's a there's a way to achieve non-duality as we do in Advaita Vedanta or classical Buddhism, which is through dissolution, through negation, and through renunciation. It's called the neti neti path, you know, and it's not necessarily a very theistic path, though it can be. Um, it ultimately proposes a world that doesn't really have God in our sense of the word God, not a personal God. God is an impersonal God. But the tantric non-dual tradition, it's a realist school in that it argues the world is actually real. But the way to enjoy it, the only way to enjoy the world is to dismiss with your notions of good or bad. The notion that it has to be a particular way. It just is. And to be radically accepting of how it is in each and every moment is the uh, ultimate attainment of tantric sadhana, you could argue. So now we come to it. Perhaps that's why Mother Kali is presented the way that she is. It, the, the very imagery used is itself in the first place, a tantric sadhana, all unto its, itself. Every time you worship Mother Kali, just you know, offering flowers, incense, fire, every time you pray to Mother Kali, every time you direct your feelings of love towards Mother Kali, what you're doing is you're training yourself to love and see divinity in that which the mind in the beginning rejects. Mother Kali dwells in the creation ground. She's the Smashana Vasini. She is 
Bora, terrifying. You know, the 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 Gayatri Mantra, which I was having some trouble singing just now. For Mother Kali is Kring, Kalikaya Vidmahe, Smashana Vasinye Dimahi. Tando, not Mata, not Devi. Gore Prachodaya. Right? Her her Dhyana Mantra, it says it there, like, oh Kali, illumine my mind. You who are the dweller in the cremation ground. What kind of a person would live in a cremation ground? You know, like you think of some very ghoulish kind of person living in a cremation ground. Probably the person who doesn't see the cremation ground as a cremation ground. You know, and so there, we were talking to Swami Bhajan the Saraswati the other day about like how at the Laguna Beach, Kalimandir, we're talking about how like the cremation ground it, it, it's a tantric metaphor for Brahman. Why? Because in Brahman, there are no names and forms. Similarly, cremation grounds, is a, they're a great leveler. When you go to cremation ground, if you're a king, you're bones. If you're a beggar, you're bones. And ultimately, even those bones, some bones will be nicer than others, you might say. Look at this skeleton. It's much, much shapelier. It's a much healthier, more calcium. You know, it's a healthier skeleton. So even if things are bones, that's not even... The cremation ground, think about it, is the bones are burned. And they're burned down to a very fine ash. And that ash, we argue, is the essence. That which can no longer be burned anymore. No matter how many times you pass that ash through the fire, it's the same ash over and over and over. So why does Mother Kali dwell in the cremation ground? Why is she smeared with ashes? Because she is there, the, the place in which all names and forms have dissolved into their essential nature. And she herself is smeared with the ashes of that. She's smeared with her own essential nature. So that's one thing. That's an important thing. Her very Gayatri mantra says, Smashana Vasinye Dimahi. And the next statement, Tanno Gore Prachodaya. So this that is illumining my mind, this dweller in the cremation ground, she is manifestly terrifying. Right? Why? Because when she appears, the mind cannot understand in many cases, that ultimate reality, which is totally devoid of notions of good or bad. Remember, we talked about how notions of good or bad are themselves the very root of all suffering. But when faced with actual reality devoid of notions of good and bad, it's conceivable that the transition might not be too easy for some people. Right? Like having a glimpse of that non-dual reality in which everything is immediate, raw aliveness can be a little jolting and destabilizing for the mind. So the practice of worshipping Makali in an image that's so provocative and challenging is that it forces the mind to see divinity in that which the mind naturally rejects. You know, so everything like the, the earrings, which are supposed to be embryos, depicting Mother Kali's power over life and death, the sword reeking with blood. I mean, how frightening is it? So, uh, Swami Vivekananda once said, Swami Vivekananda once said, they took away the sword and put there the flute. You know, out of, out of the sense of like, we don't want God to be scary. You know, because remember, the, the basic problem, as we argued earlier, is the problem of wanting the good and not wanting the bad. So Swami Vivekananda is saying, when we project that onto religion, the same thing happens where I want a Ferrari, not a bullock cart. Should I take a pump? <laughs> you know, I just have to... <laughs> do my best to... <laughs> she's leaving and we're worried about it yeah <laughs> anyway so this projection onto God of the good 
that's why Mother Kali, as you notice in, in Indian spirituality, that you get this kind of spectrum almost of her presentation is either fierce and very terrifying or reminiscent of that earlier goddess who was very fierce and terrifying, yet very censored. <laughs> so like, for instance, she's no longer nude and, and bare, like Sister Nebedita says so beautifully, like the dread realities of life and death. Rather, she's wearing a dress now, maybe. Or um, that pure primal feminine wildness that's actually kind of provocative for most urban societies. Her breasts are no longer they're covered with the garland of skulls. And then in some cases, the garland of skulls has now been replaced with a garland of flowers or something like that. But even the most benign form of that goddess, she's still quite reminiscent of that earlier cremation ground goddess. So the important point here is that when depicted in her fierce form, it itself, you know, to worship that itself, to daily offer puja to that, to con conceive of that as God, as one's own mother, is itself a kind of training to overcome labels of good or bad, notions of right and wrong, notions of this is the way it's got to be, you know. That's the first thing. Now, the second thing. The second thing is very important. There is a tendency now then to conclude, oh, so God must be this like capricious entity in the sense that God is like wild and totally unhinged and reeling under the spell of some divine intoxication. And she's just going to have her way with us because nothing is good or bad. And that's maybe even worse. Like everything is just like chaotic. Just everything is terror. And Hari Maharaj, you know, who would later become Swami Turiyanandaji, expressed this so beautifully to um, when he was talking to Shramakrishna about the problem of evil Shramakrishna in one place was saying to someone oh it's it's her play you know evil happens in the world because it's mother's play it's the way she plays and sports and all that and Hari Maharaj said well it's play for her but it's death for me so then how can we accept that as God a God who is so fierce and the mind can't even understand it like surely there's something deep down inside us that recognizes God as ultimately good. And it might be a hard sell to say that this formless, absolute non-dual reality in which notions of good or bad are gone is the ultimate good. Because the mind it doesn't understand that that is the good. Instead, it holds on to some notion of good within its own terms. And that would be like a kind God, a good God, a God that like increases the good stuff in our life. Interestingly, all the literature about Mother Kali is that. So although she's presented as this ferocious, ferocious de de deity. One can also forget that she's your very own mother and eternally invested in your well-being. Like to those who are devoted to her, she protects even in a worldly sense. As we find in the Chandi, 
She gives that guy his kingdom. You know, she doesn't say to him, ah, so good that you're suffering. This will purify you. Let me increase the suffering, Job style, you know. She's like, Job, cute. Watch what I can do. No, no, don't say that. She, out of deep love and compassion for her beloved devotee, gives Surata his kingdom back. And, and lo and behold, he's now generational. I mean, he's going to be reincarnated many, many more times to enjoy an even bigger empire. So clearly, <laughs> the literature around Mother Kali shows that she also gives worldly things, that people should feel just as comfortable approaching her as a mother and asking for help with, I don't know, their financial situation or their family situation or things like that. Like that, the literature is very clear about. Mother Kali is your very own mother. Swami Prabhavanandaji used to say she's not a nimby pamby mother. So here, her ferocity is not an affront to your mental categories of good or bad. Her ferocity is actually an appeal to your heart. She's mama bear, the ferocious mother that protects you. Notice that same ferocity, which is so appalling to the mind because it confronts you on your notions of good or bad, that same ferocity to the heart is just the deeper sense of security and the power and strength of my mother. She's fierce because she kills demons and she'll help me. So even though Shankara in his Kali Ashtakam, his eight stanzas on Shankara, describes her in the most ferocious kind of way, she's, you know, seated at the top, a mound of skulls, a throne of skulls. And, and there's blood trickling down the corners of her mouth. He's very quick to add, but you're smiling. You know, and the whole tone of the poem is like this sweet, loving embrace of a son and his mother. Shankara says, Pita Maheshwara, you know, is an Anapurna Sotra says, My father is Lord Shiva, and my mother, Mata, is Parvati. My mother is Parvati. He sees the divine mother, Kali, as he says in the Kalika Ashtakam probably as his mother. And he's always very clear about how sweet she is, how loving she is, how benign she is, how radiant she is. So again, one must remember that there's that sweet nature, that compassionate and that loving nature. Now, if either one was presented exclusively without the other, she's no longer Mother Kali. You see, then it's become a fetishization of suffering, like some god of the Old Testament or some demiurge kind of thing, or the basic human problem of what Vijay very accurately calls prosperity gospel, which is like not God, not me for God, but God for me. How can I use God to get my worldly ends? Now, the Tantric tradition, what it's done is it said these two things are valid your desire for a God that's good, that takes care of you, and at the same time, the reality of God as more than the mind can ever comprehend. And see what happened to Arjuna when he saw the universal form of Krishna. Chapter 11, he was so frightened. You know? um, so putting those two things together seems to be this, this sadhana. Like you go into the cremation ground, and we'll talk a little bit about that in a moment, and it's dark at night and the jackals are howling. You're practicing, maybe you're seated on a corpse. I don't know. I, we'll talk about those. But you're seated on a corpse. And you're meditating on this image of terror. And at the same time, you feel this deep sense of sweetness, an aching, poignant sense of like, this is my very own mother. And I'm so intimately connected with her. You know? And like, when you put those together, that is a powerful non-dual sadhana. It's a kind of reconciling of opposites, if you will. Right? Okay, that's the second thing. So all of this is captured very beautifully. By Oh, by the way, I, if I'm looking over to that side, it's because there's all these folks over here. There's, there's a special day because not only have we been doing 
non-stop Kali Puja for the last two days or so, but we're all together. So many of us are together. Special Monday, Lalita is here. It's too bad that you chose to come to the one Monday where I just like eat it. (laughs) (laughs) You come to the Nisha's nerves are fried Monday. (laughs) All All those incredible like I'm on it Mondays. No, Lalita doesn't come. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. You need to surrender. No, so no, I've done nothing at all for you, Mother. Maybe work, work on today. Now, this is important. There's a, there's a hymn, the first hymn of the Chandi, which describes Mother in very exalted philosophical terms. And there's one verse there. Maha Vidya, Maha Maya. Maha Medha, Maha Smritihi. Maha Moha Chabhavati, Maha Devi, Mahasuri. A very powerful and very evocative phrase. And sometimes when we're chanting the Chandi, I just feel like repeating this particular phrase over and over and over. Because this phrase itself captures the heart of what we've been discussing in the last however long it is that we've been together. Maha Devi, Mahasuri. How is it that those two things can appear next to each other, that she's the greatest goddess and the greatest demoness? It's strange because in the Chandi, it seems like kind of an obvious good versus bad struggle where God is good, the goddess Devi. She is fighting on the side of the gods. In the Lalita Sahasranama, one of her names is Devya Karya Samudhyata, meaning she is the one who supports the cause of the gods. You know, there it says, Chid Agni Kunda Sambhuta. Why? Because there was a demon, Bhanda Asura, and he was terrorizing the universe. And so all the gods went to a fire, a sacred fire, and prayed and prayed and prayed for release. And we were at the Homa today. And then out from that fire came the primordial form of the goddess Lalita. And that Lalita, she's the slayer of the demon Bhanda Asura. So the, the, the hymn accurately then portrays her as Chid Agni Kunda Sambhuta, she who emerges from the fire. But importantly, it's Chid Agni, the fire of consciousness. So from deep within the very essence of our nature emerges this power, this force. And in the Chandi, and also as in the Purana around the Lalita Sasrana, you know, the Lalita Sasrana is from the Brahmanda Purana. And actually it's Hayagriva, the horse-headed avatar, revealing the thousand names of my Lalita, which are supposed to be secret to the sage Agastya. The sage Agastya in that Purana like asks for them. And Hayagriva is so moved by his devotion that he reveals unto him, and fortunately for us, also to us, the thousand names of Ma Lalita. But just like in that myth, where Lalita is the, the slayer of demons, it seems like, so too in the Chandi, Ma Durga, she kills demons. So then why is it the Chandi saying she's Mahadevi Mahasuri? Why is it that in the Lalita Sahasranama, you know, she very clearly is holding a noose? Like what kind of a slayer of demons and savior holds the noose? That itself is attachment. Notice this. Okay, I'll just make this one point. This is very important. These are just like kind of just key shakta phrases that we say, but maybe we don't really sit with enough, I think. The, the, this is the phrase. Udhyad bhanu sahasraba chatur bahu samanvita Raga Swarupam Pashadya Krodha Karankush Ojvala. So that idea of like Raga Swarupam Kodanda Pashadya Pashadya. Raga Swarupam, meaning her noose, her Pasha, her bondage, her noose, Pashadya, is of the form love, attachment, desire. Who hasn't felt that? Haven't you all like loved something and then lost it and suffered it? 
Or haven't you loved something and then longed for it because it's far away? And haven't you felt what a bondage it is? Right? I mean, it's not to say that it's better not to have loved at all, but no one can deny that loving itself is very painful. And you can choose that for sure, but but make no mistake, the, the portrayal of Divine Mother in the Lalita Sahasranama is as she who holds the, 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 the gold of attachment. Now, if she was the killer of demons, then she would only inflict attachment on demons. So either that means A, she inflicts attachment on everybody, or B, you're all demons. Because <laughs> we all feel attachment. <laughs> the fact that we all feel attachment is quite clearly indicative of the fact that mother's noose has caught us. Why is mother noosing me? We should think about this. But Oh, she only nooses demons. Wow, convenient. But her noose is Raga Swarupam. You have experienced Raga. So what does that mean? It means mother's noose is on you. Would that make you demons? Well, if so, then what are demons? Then there are no more demons. If you are demons then, then there are no more demons. You see, then how can mother say demons? Then she just slays. You see, this is very important Shakta logic. When we describe mother, we say, no, 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 she's killing demons. But wait, she kills you just the same. Because maybe there aren't any demons. Maybe there's just you. And maybe this is just the psychological landscape that we all experience. So she holds that. Then, interestingly, not only that, she holds Kroda Karam Kushojwala. So even Lalita, who is not depicted as ferociously as Kali, is ferocious. What is she holding? She's holding a gold, an elephant gold. But not just any elephant gold, a gold that's flashing with anger. Kroda Karam Kushojwala. It's like Jwala. It's flashing with her Kroda. So even Lalita, who we're so used to seeing as like sweet-faced, as Lalita herself pointed out a few days ago, is fierce through and through. There's a sternness to right? Kroda Kanam Kushojwala. Be careful, you'll get the go. Look what happened to Bandasura, even after getting Shiva's wound, you know. So, in the Chandi, although mother is slaying demons, we must never forget that she herself is the mother of those demons. That's the first point. She gave birth to them, right? Like she's the one power through which Vishnu Shariram Grahanam Aham Ishana Evacha. It's right there. Oh, mother, who here can praise you? By you, even Vishnu, Shiva, and me have assumed our embodied forms. Who then can truly praise you? Vishnu, Shariram, Grahanam. Ahamishana, Evacha. Okay, so we know that gods took embodiment by Divine Mother's power. So too did demons. All the demons that we see in the Chandi. The first point to make is that if Mother is indeed Tvayata Dharyate Vishwam, Tvayata Srijate Jagat, Tvayata Palyate Devi, Tvamatsamtecha Sarveda. So if she is indeed the support of the world, the creation of the world and the devourer of the world, then the very existence of demons have their support in her, have their origin in her, in her, and have their end in her. That's the first point we have to make. Second point we have to make is in the lore itself, like in the Devi Mahatmyam, it's actually through the Divine Mother that Madhu and Kaitaba become powerful. You know, Madhu and Kaitaba, they actually, in the Devi Gita at least, did sadhana to Divine Mother. They saw a, a, a streak of lightning in the sky. I'm coming to the end in just a few minutes. And they saw a streak of lightning in the sky and they recognized that streak of lightning to be the divine mother. And they heard a mantra apparently in the air and they started repeating this mantra. And that's how they got their powers. And through that, they started threatening Brahma. So Brahma is praying to the divine mother for deliverance, but it's the divine mother herself who empowered the very demons that he's running away from. <laughs> and that's kind of cute. Then when it's come time for Vishnu to fight the two demons, it's the mother who deludes them with pride and thereby allows Vishnu to vanquish them. So importantly, her power is at play in both sides of the scale here. That's something we have to note, that um, 
that both are, are are included that even if you try to portray a mother as the, the the force of goodness fighting and slaying demons you have to accept that she's also the power of those demons and the whole play right? she, she spreads out this world and embodies herself as all of it that's there in the time so i think the hymns they kind of contradict the narrative a little bit you get your narrative it's very simple cut and dried good versus evil but the hymns are like no 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 wait look closer is it really that the, the the language itself, you who are embodied as all the powers of the hosts and gods and goddesses, you who are most worthy of worship of Ambika. Now, to go back to our, our verse, the one we were talking about, Mahavidya, Mahamaya, a pair of opposites. You are the great knowledge, but you are also at the same time the great delusion, Mahamaya, the great illusion. Mahameda, Mahasmriti, that one's nice, okay, uncontroversial. You are the great intelligence and the great remembrance. Okay, good. So the next one, Mahamoha Chabhavati. And you have become the great delusion. Mahamoha. So even though you are intelligence, even though you are like great remembrance, remembrance of what your true nature, at the same time, you are the great forgetting. And when you put that together in mythological language, we say you are the great goddess. The goddess is associated with grace, with remembering, with knowledge. But you are also the great demoness because the demonesses are often associated with Maya, illusion, or moha, delusion. So when you take this verse, you see that mother is both the great goddess, both the great demoness. That's a very powerful non-dual teaching there. So now I want to close with uh, just a brief kind of meditation on some sadhanas that we can do with regards to mother's non-dual nature. So the next line, right after that, is prakritista chasarvasya guna traya vibhavini. There are three gunas, tamas, rajas, and sattva. A lot of spiritual practitioners fetishize sattva. And that's actually good. We, we Most of us could use more sattva in our lives. But a very advanced tantric sadhana is the sadhana of having attained a lot of sattva, now reconciling with rajas and tamas. Realizing that rajas and tamas are not... Because the way it's going to work is in spiritual life, if you start realizing that, okay, sattva is what spirituality is. When I'm calm and peaceful and clear, that's spirituality. Necessarily then, what's not sattva is not spirituality. Rajas, tamas, that's worldliness. And then the, the same duality comes. So now you fetishize this thing called sattva and you demonize this thing called rajas and tamas back to the same problem that we started this lecture with. The problem of good or bad categories. So tantra, the way it radically shakes you free of such categories is by introducing practices that are themselves apparently rajasic and tamasic. You know, it seems like it. And it seems like maybe, as Swami Bhajananda and I were talking about that other day, like maybe in some cases, these were only meant to do, be done once, right? Like if you have a strong aversion to something, maybe you just need to do that thing once. Get over your aversion for it and be free. Usha Harding, Usha Devi, in her book, Kali, the Black Goddess of Dakshineshwar, makes the point that it's actually aversion that's harder to overcome. Attachment is easy to overcome, relatively easy. Aversion is hard to overcome our hatred, our dislike, that's hard to overcome. So Tantra says, just, or this form of Tantra that I'm talking about now, just like Divine Mother Kali licked up the blood of Rakta Bij Asura, you know, the demon who, his blood would spawn more demons. And in order to prevent that, Mother went and licked up his blood, just like that. Just the way Mother was intimately licking the demons, so too are we invited to, I don't know, in some extreme cases like, eat the flesh of a corpse. That's not, I'm not joking. That's an actual tantric sadhana that's done in some restricted sense. I, maybe Daoji maybe can speak to a bit. Oh, he went to bed. That's too bad. 
he he was like kind of into the agori kind of stuff. So Daoji Das, he was here just now. He's like kind of into the agori practices. And I myself don't know very much about them because in our Kashmir Shaiva Kalatrika lineage, we we know that a lot of these were interiorized and 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 practiced not in that context. Although the the we'll, we'll say something about that in just a few moments. But now the point that I'm making is. That's a real sadhana, and people really do it literally. Sri Ramakrishna did it. Apparently, like he ate the flesh of a corpse. He also ate fish, which is one of the five makaras, as the Gambari Devi will remember on our Friday night lecture. We were discussing Ram Prasad, and we we're discussing how Ram Prasad performed the rajasic form of tantric sadhana called Vira sadhana. There, you offer the Divine Mother Kali five things wine, madhya, mamsa, meat, matsya, fish. Mudra, which could be a kind of intoxicant, a kind of drug, or it could be an aphrodisiacal rice, or it could just be a hand gesture. We don't know what that is. And finally, maituna, like actual sex. None of these things seem like a big deal now. It's like, oh, that's just Wednesday night in Los Angeles. No, no. But back then, if you were a Brahmin, all of these things were so taboo, you know? They were like, oh my God, you would you would feel like as if you lost not only caste in this life, but every other life you would be sullied. You'd be made so impure by even like can you imagine offering sex to God? Or like, I mean, now, <laughs> now it's like a workshop that you can pay $300 for. So like someone in a very slow and sultry voice can tell you how to practice tantra, you know, like, like now, now it's not a big deal. But back then, the idea, it was a very compartmentalized life. The idea that like God exists in the bedroom or that God could be, mostly it's meat, meat and fish. Like that kind of stuff is like, or wine, like, oh, like, you know, really horrible. Like, I wouldn't want to ever touch that or eat that. And some scholars will say that Maituna was not about just any sex. It was about, like, sex you didn't want to have, actually. Like, you as a Brahmin might never want to, like, even look at a certain person in your society that you were culturally conditioned to see as a lower caste, let alone enter into a sexual union with them, God forbid. You see, but if you did, maybe then you'll realize that, oh, my God, everything is the Divine Mother Kali. This wasn't so bad, I didn't die. Or if you're like a raw foods vegan or something, maybe your tantric sadhana, as Harish G once joked, is to go to McDonald's and eat a Big Mac. Because that might shock you out of your like notion of, oh, I'm so pure, I'm so holy, veganism, amazing, stomach is a graveyard, sporting these evils. Like, <laughs> like that sadhana, just go eat a Big Mac as a vegan. That That is probably, as Harish G was joking, today's equivalent of the panchamakaras. Anyway, my point is just to say, <clears throat> there are things that are manifestly horrific to us. And sadhanas like this, like what Sri Ramakrishna would do is he would touch his tongue to excreta that was in his own. He would, you know, clean the floors of untouchables, bathrooms with his own hair. You know, is that, is that can you imagine like, like mopping the bathroom floor with your very own hair? Um, he would eat the flesh of a corpse. In one case, he ate fish curry out of the skull bowl. Like all of these sadhanas, like, why do they exist? Well, probably because they are really icky and really horrifying and nobody wants to do these things. But in doing them in a spiritual and ritual context, you overcome your aversion to them and thereby you include. you. doesn't mean like as, as uh, what Sai Bhajan the joke says, it's not your lunchbox. You don't take it to school every day, your skull bowl with the fish curry. <laughs> but having done it once or twice, or at least in some case, thank you, at least in some case, that that itself is a powerful and helpful sadhana. Okay, so that's the first thing. But the thing to, to realize now is that 
although those sadhanas are literally practiced, like people literally will do the panchamakaras, or they literally eat the corpse of the, the flesh of the corpse that Sri Ramakrishna did. None of those need to be the way with you. You don't have to literally do it. What it means for us is just maybe just like intellectually and internally understanding that that too is God. Doesn't mean you go and engage with it, but just the kind of understanding that like, no, 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 it's also really great. It's also really pure and really beautiful because that alone exists. It might not be for me, but it certainly is God. So this would be like saying, okay, there's a person that I really dislike, but they're God. And I actually, on, on a deep level, if I love God, I also love them. But that doesn't mean that you need to go and hang out with them. Right? So this is a very difficult sadhana, actually, because it doesn't mean you have to eat flesh of the corpse every day. But having done it once, you realize that like maybe it's not as impure as you thought it was. This is the, this is the kind of training. So when you do sadhana with <laughs> Mother Kali, you can see in some sense it's that training where we're learning to love that which is adverse. So when you look at our image, you'll actually see reference to some of that kind of sadhana. So notice in this particular image, and maybe you can't quite see it, but this is Bhairavi, and Bhairavi is seated on a corpse. So she's doing what is called Shava sadhana, or Shava asana sadhana, which means sadhana on top of a corpse, which we know many tantrikas actually took literally and practiced literally. Like Ram Prasad, we know, literally sat on a corpse and did his japa, meditation on a corpse. So that's Shava sadhana. And Madhakali, She's depicted as not only the goddess of the tantras, but like the tantric practitioner par excellence, because here she is seated atop a corpse, performing her sadhana, in a sense. And secondly, she's often depicted with this like bowl of blood, um, which maybe is a reference to drinking wine, or maybe it's, it's a reference to the like intoxication of just experiencing life without your categories of good or bad. Like we said in that lecture, Makali's bowl of blood. So many things about Mother Kali seem to imply this kind of sadhana, which for the most part, although it has Vaishnava like um, practices, I mean, it, it, although it's quite prominent in the Vaishnava community also, uh, for the most part, revolve around Mother Kali, revolve around Shaiva Shakta Tantra, because a lot of times they came from that tradition to begin with. Okay, done. So we talked about the Pashupatas and the Atimargas. We didn't really, but the Pashupatas, the Atimargas, the Aghoris, the Kapalikas. Aghoris and Kapalikas maybe came a little later, but the Pashupatas and... and um, maybe Veera Shaivas, Ati Margins, you could call them. These early Shaivas, they, they were practicing this kind of cremation ground stuff, which today in our more maybe urban sort of refined intellectual academic tantra, which we, which we get maybe out of the masters of Kashmir, you find actually more of an emphasis on the metaphor and the symbolism implied in these practices and not their actual literal practice. No. So here would be the practice that you take away, though. What are the things in your life that you're averse to? And without getting into any danger, like obviously you don't have to go hug the tiger god just because she's God, um, bow from a distance. But in your mind, at least, what are the things that you in your mind are resisting that you call bad, that you, you think should manifestly not be? Can you just allow that to be? Can you just be like, okay, that's God too. And you'll know when it really has this deep inner shift of like an acceptance. You know, so that that's one um, invitation of Mother Kali. So this is the non-duality of Mother Kali in terms of sadhana. Okay, so let's call it a night there. I, I want to talk a little bit about Kali as like a um, as as a, as a universal symbol. But we we did in the previous lecture. It was called "Why is Mother Kali so blissful?" Towards the end of that lecture, that was a Thursday night lecture. Towards the end of that lecture, we had a kind of extended meditation on some of the things that Usha Devi says in her book about other forms of Kali in other traditions, like the Scottish Kailiak or um, the Spanish Kalifia, 
um, which is why California is actually named after Kali, or the Greek Rhea, for instance, or Rhiannon is the Celts called her. So, or, or Tanatzen or Kwatlikyu. We were talked about Aztec deities and Celtic deities and Gaelic deities and 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 Spanish deities, and, and we compare them all to Kali. Or you know, the Romani people have the Sara la Kali. And like all, all these people, like all these different deities might point to a kind of universality which makes mother worship not unique to Hinduism or a cultural context like India. We think, oh, we're participating in like an Indian culture, right? Like Trevor Hall sings in that song, we're in a different culture, we're in a different room, like that. My argument here is the opposite. No, 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 there's only one room. We're all in it. It's just that the kind of patriarchal religions that came after that replaced the primacy of primordial motherhood with maybe a more abstracted and slightly less genuine version of like fatherhood, which is not, it's also valid, but maybe we forgot that actually that we're not in different cultures. We're not in different rooms. There's only ever been one room, mother's room, and all of us everywhere in, in the, the Celts. I mean, you can make an argument, oh, these are all Indo-European peoples. But in that lecture, we talked a little bit about also Aztec cultures and Mesopotamian cultures, cultures that were not Indo-European. They too had a strong cult of the Divine Mother, which argues there's something kind of universifying about the worship of the Divine Mother. On an anthropological, sociopological, and like comparative religious point of view, the Divine Mother is a pretty non-dual form of worship, a form of religion, because everybody seems to share it. No. So that's kind of what I intend to talk about today, those three things. Um, first of all, Mother Kali's non-dual nature as a harmonization of two opposites and thereby a powerful sadhana to overcome the mind's categorization of good or bad. Right? Secondly, I want to talk about sadhanas that are related to that. Um, just the macabre, literal sadhanas and the metaphorical versions of those things. Then the third thing I want to talk about a little bit was Mother Kali's universal appeal as the Divine Mother, which is kind of common across all different cultures. These are the three things that I was kind of playing around with in terms of approaching the subject, Mother Kali's non-dual nature. Of course, there's one more verse. I won't cover it, but it was the this opening verse. Ardha matra sita nitya yanucharya visheshata. No, before that even. Tom swaha tom swadatam hi vashatkara swaratmika. It's a very deep teaching. You abide eternally. You eternally abide as the threefold mantra. That's what that Tridha Matra refers to. Om. But as we know from the Mandukya Upanishad, which is maybe a reference here, is it made to the Mandukya? Uh, we know that there, uh, is the waking state. U is the dreaming state. Ma is the deep sleep state. All of the things that the classical Buddhist and classical Advaita Vedantin dismiss as not being a countable second, not being a reality, not being an eternal reality on the basis of the fact that it changes. So because waking, dreaming, deep sleep is always changing, whereas consciousness, Turiya, the witness to which it all appears, because that's not changing, then therefore that alone must be real. And the But here we're saying, no, no, no. Eternally, nitya, which is a word you would very unlikely use about the changing world, she abides eternally, nitya, as waking, dreaming, deep sleep. Right? So like the idea that she is turiya, consciousness, but not as distinct from waking, deep sleep, embodied as waking, dreaming, deep sleep. Anyway, all of this, I think, this like final piece of the lecture, this material, I think, is for another night. A different night, a night where we can talk about divine mother as consciousness, and maybe there we'll look at the Ram Prasad poem. Um, who can understand what Mother Kali is? Oh no, there's another poem like the yogis meditate on you in darkness. You are the beauty in the dense darkness. There's like that poem. So we'll save a lecture for Mother Kali, 
alone in the shrine of Samadhi or something like that. There's there's definitely space for more discussion in that last one. But I think that's enough for tonight. It's just important to recognize that when we do Kali Puja, the reason why everyone howls in that blood-curdling way and the reason why there's jackals and funeral pyres, like cremation ground fires and, 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 and snakes and garlands of skulls and girdles of hands, if you, if you just divest it of all its symbolism, what you have is a striking, um, horrifying, in some cases, revolting image, which your work now is to see as nothing but the highest beauty, the most charming and, 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 and enchanting and, and delightful mother, the mother of the universe, who is a cremation ground dwelling madwoman. What is the mind to make of that? And when the mind dissolves, then alone will mother shine, revealed in her nakedness, in her bareness, free of all notions of good or bad. That might be the invitation of Mother Kali. So I pray that on this Kali Puja, on this Amavashya, or at least the first day after Amavashya, that she may give us this boon, that we like her may be mad. Oh, Mother, we are thy children after all. So like mother, like son, or like mother, like daughter, like mother, like child. May we too be mad, drinking deeply from the cup of devotion and mind-free nature. Om Kalikaya Vidmahe Smashanavasinye Dimahi Tanno Gore Prachodayat Om Tanno Gore Prachodayat Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tatsat Shri Ramakrishna Panamastu Om Om Om